Would you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25? Matthew chapter 25, those of you who are back after summer or who are new, um, we're going through the book of Matthew, and last week we took one giant leap for mankind when Pastor Baker preached, and we did a whole chapter in one week. And so we're back to my habits this week which means that we'll read the first 13 verses. Last week, Pastor Baker preached through Matthew 24. And this week, as we turn to Matthew 25, we find that this chapter, like the one last week, is focused on the subject of what is to come and how Christ's disciples are to prepare for it. And last week, we saw that the warnings of chapter 24 have two events in view. First of all, in the immediate future, the coming of the destruction of the Jewish temple and of the city in which it was, Jerusalem. This happened at about 70 A.D. It was only about 40 years after Jesus gave these warnings. But we see also that we are warned of the second coming of our Lord, which then was in the future, but which is still today, 2,000 years later, in the future. This is the time when God Almighty, the judge of all the earth, will separate the sheep from the goats, when he will separate those who are awake from those who sleep, when he will separate the wheat from the chaff. Now, if you've ever celebrated Thanksgiving in a church, you've probably sung, Come ye thankful people, come. And one of the verses goes like this. For the Lord our God shall come and shall take the harvest home. From the field shall in that day all offenses purge away, giving angels charge at last in the fire the tares to cast. But the fruitful ears to store in the garner in the silo forevermore. And so as we move into the study of these three parables, which constitute chapter 25, we will see this theme that Jesus hits. And it is a theme, much like this verse from Come Ye Thankful People Come, it is a theme of distinction and of division. As with every courtroom here on earth where guilty and not guilty are declared, so in the courtroom of God, each of us will see two things that are hated by our wicked culture and age. There we will see distinction and division. The postmodern man, in other words, those of us that live today in our culture, hates distinctions. But he hates divisions even more. His natural inclination is to blend things together into a mishmash. And so he opposes distinctions, particularly if those distinctions are rooted in something other than human choice. When I was young, I had a very different taste in newspapers. And as I've gotten older, my taste has really changed. When I was young, I always read the editorial, the op-ed pages. I lived in a home of an editor and a writer. 
We talked, we argued at the dinner table. So I just loved the give and take of letters to the editor and opinion pieces. And then I, second to that, would read the news because that's what you read the newspaper for is the news. And as I've gotten older, I found that the sections of the newspaper I had absolutely no interest in when I was young are the sections that I read now, and I don't bother with the news or the op-ed pages. The sections I read now are sports and business. And the reason that I read sports and business now is that those are the only sections of the paper left that have any consequences, that have any commitment to truth. In other words, you can actually measure the performance of a sports team and of a corporation. And what I've noticed as I've gotten older is that I also take great joy in certain professions I never thought of when I was younger. I take great joy in doctors and lawyers today. And it's because generally in the corporate world and in sports and in the doctor's office, and in the courtroom, we want division. And we want distinction. This is an amazing thing that we haven't yet gotten rid of it there. So today there are many who can only imagine God condemning men to hell if those men themselves have chosen it. In other words, we oppose distinctions, particularly if those distinctions are rooted in something other than human choice. You know, once you come to choice, then you have a value today which is close to competing with the value of hating distinctions. Does this make sense? And so it rises to the level of giving some competition and you've got dissonance. You know, you've got, well, on the one hand, choice, that's good. And on the other hand, no distinctions because they're bad. But if a guy chooses to be different, all right. Okay, that distinction's okay. You see? But what if God irretrievably, in the nature of the thing, from the moment of conception, makes you the second sex. What if he makes you a woman? You didn't choose that. It's unfair. You see? And, and so it all goes. What if God made you an African instead of an American? You're going to live your life in resentment. What if God made you poor in a double wide instead of Hyde Park? You're going to spend a life in resentment. What if he sends you to Ivy Tech instead of IU? You're going to spend your life in resentment. What if he sends you to IU instead of Ivy Tech? You're going to spend your life feeling superior. Are you going to just feel your whole life like a victim? Many of you have been taught by our culture to spend your life blaming everybody but yourself for anything you don't like and taking entire, entire control and pride in everything you do like because it's the product of your own hands. America loves victims. And so we come to chapters of Scripture where Jesus Christ is warning that he himself is going to shut the door, that he himself will divide the sheep from the goats, and that he himself for all eternity will keep the door shut. 
and will keep the teeth gnashing and will keep the fires burning. And immediately we just fall all over ourselves trying to talk about man's choice and how we're all masters of our own fate and how, well, God does finally. I mean, if he can't help it, finally, he will ultimately give you what you want if you want help. But it's very interesting in the text we're about to read to notice those who are hypocrites, what their choice actually is when confronted with the closed door. What their choice actually is when confronted with the absence of oil for their lamp. And so I want to tune you. I want, I want to make you aware of where we're headed as we read the text of Scripture. Look in your heart, see your hatred for anything that makes you less than master of your own fate. Look in your heart and see your hatred for distinction, your hatred for division. And then you will begin to have the ears you need to have to hear what, not, not what I say, but what the Lord says. Let us hear the word of God. <clears throat> then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Now, back in our Lord's time, instead of what we refer to today as engagement, they had what they called betrothal. And the betrothal began with the father and mother of both the groom and the bride giving permission for the marriage to occur. And then it was a period when they would settle any contractual matters that were foundational to that betrothal agreement. Following, there was a period of between six months and a year during which the couple was guaranteed to one another. They were even called married, and yet the marriage had not yet been consummated. And this was the period of betrothal. At the end of the betrothal, the time for the wedding proper arrived, and it was apparently the habit for the groom to travel to his father-in-law's house to get his bride. Of course, it was a day of great joy. And along with his own friends, young men accompanying him as the groom 
picked up his bride to take her back to his house, he and the rest of the wedding procession were joined by a number number of young women also who would join the merrymaking. It was a ceremonially solemn occasion, and yet it was also huge fun with much joking, much laughter, much singing, and much joy all around. Now, since the tradition was carried out late at night, and this was back in the time when there weren't any street lamps, everyone had to have their own flashlight. But, of course, there weren't flashlights either. And so everyone had to carry oil lamps, but it's not the oil lamp you've seen in a museum, the little clay thing that has a little wick sticking out of a hole in the top, maybe a little handle on the side, because those wouldn't do out on the street to cast a beam of light for where you're walking. These would have been what we today, these would be what we today call torches. They were long wooden sticks or rods. Bear wood at one end for the person holding it to grasp, and at the other end it would have had reeds or it would have had grass or it would have had rags. And the reeds, the grass of the rags were soaked in oil, and then it was lit. And the oil as it burned would give a great light. It was sufficient for outdoors. It was sufficient to walk down the street. And it is these wedding processions that Jesus uses to illustrate his second coming. Now, if you've read Scripture, you know that Scripture repeats the theme again and again that Jesus has said he will come again. When I was young, my mother, having lost two of the three sons she would lose during our childhood, had a strong commitment to the theme of the second coming of Jesus Christ. You can imagine what a comfort it was to her that she would see her children again. And I remember being a very, very tiny tyke and hearing over and over again on the record player two pieces of music. One was the entire Messiah. They had just gotten their record player when I was a little baby. Thank you, dear brother. And I, I'm always confirmed with the Colin Davis uh, version of the Messiah. Um, and then the other thing she had was a somewhat schmaltzy kind of piece. But it was about the second coming. I, I've never heard it since, but it's burned into my brain from the time I was young. And it goes sort of like this. Don't worry, I know I'm not a musician. Coming again, coming again, maybe morning, maybe noon, maybe evening, and maybe soon. Come. Does, has anybody ever heard that before? Oh, what a glorious day that will be. Actually, <clears throat> I hate to say this, I'm embarrassed, but that's not what I used to listen to, because that's a hymn. I know that hymn. <clears throat> And it's just, huh? That's hopeful. <laughs> I would say I done is old. <laughs> Hate to tell you that, Tim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not for long. <clears throat> Anyhow, I don't remember the name of the song. I can see the album, and that's not going to come to me. But it was much like what I just sang to you. And 
This was a theme that was very, very prominent in our home. My mother's heart was on pilgrimage. She was in heaven. As a matter of fact, there were some sufferings on the part of us children that remained behind because of that. My mother was so much on pilgrimage that for a period of time, she wasn't the best mother. I think probably mothers can understand that. And so we see that when our Lord spoke about his second coming, he intended it to be a comfort for us. Um, Not just for mothers who have lost children, but for those who are persecuted, for those who are lonely, for those who have desired to have children but don't have them. Thank you. And so we see again and again when Jesus talks about his second coming, we see this theme repeated again and again of the comfort that it will be. Probably the one that's best known is found in John chapter 14, where Jesus says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again that where I am, there you may be also. And it's a precious promise. When the disciples were with our Lord, as he was raised up bodily to heaven, they were left standing looking into heaven, and an angel appeared to them. And the angel said this to them in Acts 1.11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And then they were sent out to be salt and to be light. If we go to the end of the New Testament, I think you're all going to have to live with me, my voice today. If you go to the end of the New Testament in the book of Revelation, Recorded by the beloved disciple, the Apostle John, we read these things. Revelation 22:20. 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And so here we see a parable setting out <coughs> some of the details of Christ our Lord's second coming. Verse 1 says, the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, the bridegroom is our Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know that, just a simple statement of fact. The bridegroom is our Lord Jesus Christ. Often in Scripture, this theme of the people of God being the bride of God and of Jesus Christ is struck. In Hosea, the Old Testament prophet, chapter 2, verse 19 We read, I will betroth, betrothal, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And then again at the end, in the book of Revelation, we read Revelation 19.9, Then he said to me, write, and here's what he was to write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. So Christ Jesus, our Lord, is our bridegroom. And in this parable, the virgins are professing Christians. So Christ is the bridegroom. The bridegroom is Christ. 
and the virgins are professing Christians, church members who claim faith in Jesus Christ and have hope of heaven. In other words, they're people like you and me. Now, if we hate distinction and division, we particularly hate it when it comes inside our marriage and inside our home and inside our churches. In other words, the closer we are with people, the more we hate distinction. And so I want to point out to you that it's Jesus who says this. It's Jesus who is dividing the church. It's very clear that everybody there has a lamp. Everybody there is making a claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. But what we find is that the kingdom of heaven is comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom, to meet Jesus Christ. Now, what is the duty of followers of Jesus Christ? What is it that Jesus has told us to do? Certainly the church should be about being obedient to our master. Don't call me Lord, Lord, and then not do what I tell you to do. Certainly all of us here would say that we have gathered here, that our presence here is in obedience to the command of Jesus Christ. Forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. Certainly sitting under the preaching of the word. How shall they believe unless they hear? How shall they hear unless someone tells them? How beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the good news. Certainly all of us All of us would claim that we're here out of obedience to Jesus Christ. Even those who are not yet given faith in Jesus Christ are here because we know that the Bible says that he is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. We're all here out of obedience to Jesus Christ. And so we ought to ask the question, as we wait for the bridegroom for the second coming of the Lord, what are we to do? Well, You could say that all of Scripture is an account of what we're to do, but let's go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, to hear a little bit about what we are to do as we wait. Jesus says to those who claim faith in him, those of the Christian religion, he says this. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, I hope at that point you're thinking, what, you know, where is the transition there? Where's the bridge? I don't get it. He's talking about not letting your salt lose the savor, and he's talking about letting your light shine, not hiding it under a bushel. And then he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Well, the connection is that the way that the salt has its savor and the way that the light shines is by being obedient to the law of God. There is absolutely no way of being a light to this world except by keeping the law of God. 
In other words, having warm sentimental feelings in your heart for the person sitting next to you in a classroom doesn't cut it. Smiling won't cut it. Now, I guess it's conceivable that sitting next to somebody who weighs 540 pounds and who overflows into the seat next to you could be keeping the law. Somebody with terrible acne, somebody with terrible body odor, somebody who is a Christian, if you sat next to them, then that could constitute keeping the law. Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, when Jesus tells us to be salt and when he tells us to be light, again, we have this division issue, and the division is between those who are law breakers in their lives and those who are law keepers. And Jesus says what? He says, have savor, have taste in your salt, and let your light shine. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Very interesting. Don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. If I were to say to you that the Roman Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation was a great conspiracy to abolish the law and the prophets while making a big show of law-keeping, some of you would understand that. If I were to tell you that the evangelical church today is a great conspiracy to abolish the law and the prophets... But instead of under the guise of infused righteousness and penance and works of supererogation, today it's all done under endless mantra talk of grace. I hope you understand that we're in as desperate a situation today as there ever was in the Middle Ages. Because the church around the world today knows nothing but grace, and that grace is entirely antinomian, which is a large word, in church history that refers to those who hate the law. And so Jesus says, let your light shine. Jesus says, have savor in your salt. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. And then he continues in the Sermon on the Mount saying this, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Well, if Jesus came to fulfill the law, is it wrong for his children to fulfill the law? Would it be in our brains that we, following Jesus Christ, should conform ourselves to the work that he did? Is this not graceful? And you think, why is he yelling? And I say, well, it's rare. But generally... If there's something that we don't get and don't get and don't get and don't get and don't get, after a while, like the other night, after an hour and a half of talking to a man, I finally yelled. I spent an hour and a half quiet. And listen, this use of God's grace as a means of escaping and abolishing the law of the prophets has to stop. It is wicked because it leads souls to hell. And nowhere is it more rife than in the Reformed and the Presbyterian Church. And that's my mind. So I'm talking to myself. Don't think I'm condemning you. If you're Reformed and Presbyterian, God bless you. But this is me, my heritage. And so what we read is, don't think 
that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. Now, when are heaven and earth going to pass away? At the second coming. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, some of you are confused at this point because you thought if you were in an evangelical and a Protestant church, we wouldn't talk about obedience or the law. And I feel your pain. But here's the deal. The only way you can love the law is if you have faith in Jesus Christ. And it is the faith in Jesus Christ that gives you a love for the law. That love for the law and obedience to it does not save you. Do you understand this? That's the error of Roman Catholicism in effusion. But you are not saved. You are not a true Christian. You do not have true faith if you do not keep the law of God. Nowhere does Scripture ever say that you should not test fruit. But rather, our Lord's command is, by their fruit you shall know them. And if by their fruit I should know you, by my fruit you should know me, by my fruit I should know my, my own heart and my own self. And now we go into the parable. And what we find is <clears throat> that there are ten virgins. Now again, think of how this parable is lied about today in the evangelical church. Would you ever, ever, ever know by the teaching of the evangelical church that of ten virgins, five of them are hypocrites? And do you realize that the commentators of the past made a comment about how gracious Jesus was being with his numbers? In other words, they said, this is wonderful. Jesus is giving us 50%. Now, why would they say that? Well, if you think about the other places where the Lord adds up numbers and gives us proportions, what are the proportions? Well, the proportions are broad and narrow. The proportions are many and few. And here it's equal. There are five virgins who are wise and five virgins who are foolish. And so, as I said in the first service, right here, if you look back, you'll see a thermostat on that wall. And you bring a line right up to the front. And what Jesus is saying is in the church, the right half is wise and the left half is foolish. Now remember, I'm not the one that said this, it's Jesus. And so Jesus tells us that it's a 50-50 proposition. But is it a 50-50 proposition? You know the story of the seeds in the soil. Of the seed that is sown, can you remember what happened? Remember the birds got one? Remember that? Another one did what? It fell on the what? Path. 
All right. And the birds got it. Another one, what? It went on the rock. Remember that Jesus says that the way is broad that leads to destruction. The way is narrow that leads to eternal life and few there be that find it. And so we go on in the story, and what do we find? Verse 2, five of them were foolish and five were prudent. The foolish virgins are not prepared, and so they are exposed. Despite their claim to be longing for his appearance, to be waiting for the bridegroom, they sleep in an unprepared state. There is no light shining from them. There is no internal principle in them of law-keeping, of holiness and truth. There is no standing against the evil of their own heart, let alone the evil of the world. There is no love for the lost. There is not a word of evangelism. There is no coming alongside the sick and the weak and the naked and the lonely and the oppressed. There is no rebuke of their children, because, of course, rebuke of your children requires faith. There's no submission to their husband, because, of course, submitting to your husband requires faith. There's no honoring of the eldership, because, of course, honoring the elders requires faith. There are no dirty pages in their Bible, because it is unread. There are no tears in the private prayer closet because there is not a private prayer closet. There is no memorization of God's word. There are no embarrassing statements of warning or Christian appeals to mess up their family reunions. There's no sexual purity in their Firefox cookie cache. They're very good at deleting their cookies but only filth in the caches of their computers. And then they hide. With them the seed was sown, but it came to rest on stony ground, and finding no root, no place to pull its sustenance and water, The shoot stands there, tender but dead, small and dry, hopeless for want of nourishment. Meanwhile, though, they appear to their neighbors as if they're what? As if they're ready. In all ways, like as the wise virgins, except one thing is lacking, and that is the oil. Now, what of the wise virgins? Well, the wise virgins, things are entirely different with them. They, too, slept. And the Bible scholars argue over that. Some think it's a failure and some think it's not. One of them said that God has made us to need sleep and that you can't be on battle station alert all the time. But they do all sleep, don't they? 
But when they're awakened by cries that the bridegroom has come, the ones who are wise, those who are not simply professors of the Christian religion, but confessors of the Christian faith, they are proven to be true believers. The bridegroom took a long time to come. He came when they'd least expected at midnight, and when he came, they were ready. How do we know they were ready? Well, look at the text. Verse 6, at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. You see, up in verse 3, the foolish took no oil with them. And so when they trimmed them, verse 8, the foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. In other words, when Christ, our bridegroom, comes, and when he comes the next time, it will not be hidden. It won't be humble and it won't be in a stable. And it will not be something that the Roman rulers can miss and all the rich people and the scribes and Pharisees in Jerusalem can miss. When Jesus Christ comes the next time, the Bible tells us that he will come in his glory. And there will be no fake pyrotechnics at that moment. But every eye will see him. And what about your ears? The deaf will hear. Because his coming will be accompanied by the trumpet and by the shout, the voice of the archangel. Those who are not prepared will demonstrate at that time what their true choice is. Those who are found to be without oil will demonstrate at that time what their true choice is. Because they will go to those with oil and ask to be able to borrow some so their lamps may be burning. But when our Lord Jesus Christ returns, the door is closing and they can't they can't get any of the oil they can't get any of the oil not not did you think it was for nothing that Jesus said today if you hear my voice do not harden your hearts did you think he was joking did you think he's like your father who says come here johnny come here johnny johnny come here Johnny, if you don't come here, I'm not going to be happy with you, Johnny. Johnny, come here. Johnny, I'm going to count to ten. Johnny, I'm going to count. Johnny, I'm starting to count. Johnny, one, Johnny. Two, Johnny. Three, Johnny. Four, Johnny. Five, Johnny. Six, Johnny. Seven, Johnny. Eight, Johnny. Nine, Johnny. Nine and a half, Johnny. Nine and three quarters, Johnny. Nine and seven 
eighths, Johnny. Nine and fifteen sixteenths, Johnny. Is this really what we think God is like? Do we really think that God does not keep his word? This is why I teach fathers constantly, don't ever make a threat you don't follow through on. Because you're lying about God, our Heavenly Father. If you've raised children who think this is never a day of consequence, if you've raised children who will be surprised to stand before a judge who says guilty, what do you think you will answer for at the judgment throne of God when your son is sent to hell and is shocked. God keeps his word. And it's God who said, be not deceived. I am not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. The man who sows to his sinful nature will from his sinful nature reap destruction. It is God who said about himself, our God is a consuming fire. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, mind you, I'm not talking about myself. I am his spokesman. It is not a fearful thing to fall into my hands. Because the first thing I'll say to you is, I don't want to have to discipline you. I'd really rather not. That's how I talk to my kids. Come on, help me here. I really don't like to be a disciplinarian. How many of you believe that's what I say to my kids? See, you're wrong. That's actually Isn't that what I said to you last week? Yep, see? If I say it to Seth, you know that's what I say to my children. (laughs) But God, God is not like that. God doesn't have angst. God has not spent his day defying God with a bad conscience. God is God. And he's holy. And he consumes those who reject him. And if he says, today if I speak to you, do not harden your heart. God means it. And you look at him and you say, oh, no, no, no. I psyched you out a long time ago. I watched my father carefully. And then I watched my teachers in the public school system, a bunch of wimps. I watched them carefully. And then I watched the principal tremble in front of my father and my mother. And then I watched the judge plea bargain it down from assault with a deadly weapon to hunting out of season. Listen, this is a real story of an alky rich boy across the hall from me at Northern Illinois University. He took his rifle, he put it in the window of a guy on our floor and threatened to kill him. And then his rich daddy came to town with his rich lawyer And he came back to the dorm later the day after the court appearance, and they'd plead bargain it down to hunting out of season. 
This is the court. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says what? Jesus says what? Jesus says there are five that are wise. There are five who are foolish. The bridegroom comes and the five that are foolish say, give us some of your oil. Give us some of your oil. And the wise ones say, no. There's not enough. It's every man, it's every woman for herself now. When the time remained, I prayed for you. And I used to warn you. I used to plead with you to read your Bible. I used to ask you to come to church with me. I used to spank you and then pray that God would save you. I raised your mother, and she should have taught you the things of God. If I could, I would give my blood. I would give the Apostle Paul and Moses, I would give my soul for you. You remember that? Both Moses and Paul said, if I could, I would go to hell for the sake of God's people. But no, the door is shut. And so they go running and they think that they're going to, you know, that they're going to be able to buy oil and get back real quickly. You think of all the people that we have seen approach the deathbed living, having lived a life of hell. And then at the death scene, a well-intentioned relative or pastor shows up in the hospital room. And they go into them and say, if you'll just repeat these words after me. Dear Jesus, come on, pray with me, please. Jesus. I acknowledge I'm a sinner and don't deserve anything good from your hand. Come into my heart in Jesus' name, amen. And then what happens? That relative and that preacher, they go out and they announce to everybody that Uncle Ralph, on his deathbed, praise God, was saved. And you say, are you saying he's not? I'm saying every single godly commentator on this text says that those conversions are one in a thousand. But when I listen to other preachers and when I listen to relatives, they're a thousand for a thousand. There's not even a blush about it. And so every single person that asks a pastor to do their funeral, what happens? You know what happens. They're preached into heaven. Deathbed conversion. You know what I do when I hear you say that to me? I've done it this last year. At the funeral home, a man who shortly before he died, supposedly, purportedly, was converted. And so the relatives that are from our church are going around saying, isn't it wonderful? They became a Christian. They put faith in Jesus Christ. It was such a long time coming. And yet that man had a period of time between when he supposedly put faith in Jesus Christ and when he died, there was not one thing done in his life to reconcile to the people that he had spent his life burning. There was no 
nothing done to change and to remedy the sins that he had committed in his life. And so what did I do? I went to the people from our church and I said, all of your family who are unbelievers are watching you right now. And what they're hearing is that a simple verbal assent to a proposition is what makes a Christian. And they're scandalized by it. And they are going to be hardened in their unbelief unless you stop now. Do you understand that? Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that's what he will reap. And you say, well, there you go again. You're talking that a man's saved by his works. You're saying he didn't do works, and so he's not saved. What are you, Roman Catholic? No, 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 no. What I'm saying is our Savior's rule is by their fruit you shall know them. If a man says he believes in Jesus Christ, he will have a lamp that has oil. Oil! Oil! And so what's a lamp with oil? Jesus said, he said it's bright and it's shining. You know what the central reality of Bloomington is? The central reality is there is not one Christian on the campus of this university who has ever been fired for, for testifying to Jesus Christ. And only one who's come close. Yeah, you did. And that's why I love you. I'm sorry to call you out like that, but I had just waited for years for any faculty member, anybody. Anybody to like make a name for themselves by confessing Jesus Christ in this hell. You say, how can you call it a hellhole? I came here to study. I say, oh, come on, you know what it is. You know what they're saying to you in your classes? You know all the men that are putting moves on you in the music school? What do you think hell's going to be like? I mean, I've heard you. For 16 years I've heard you tell me what the university is like. That's not even talking about the abortuary. It's not even talking about the Kinsey Institute. And it's certainly not talking about basketball. And here we are, fat and rich and safe. And we're scandalized that Jesus says there are five foolish versions out of ten. Here's, here's what I want to know, okay? This is a thought experiment. And I once did this at another church in town. The main man of the church came back from Florida. He was scandalized that I was exhorting the elders to go privately to a woman and rebuke her. He just thought it was absolutely the end of the world that he would have a senior pastor that would make such an exhortation. He just couldn't conceive of it. And I said to him, sir, we'll call him sir. Sir, don't you think that in a church of, say, you know, 700 people, don't you think that there may be once in four years one person, one, who needs to be corrected privately? You know what he said? He said, but she is a Christian. 
<laughs> well, that's where my argument falls to the ground. I was certainly hoping you wouldn't make that particular point, but I can see that you're more than a match for me. In other words, it's just ludicrous to think that the members of the family are the ones you don't discipline and you go outside and discipline the members that aren't in the family. Twisted, fully twisted. So I said that to him. I said, well, if your daughter so-and-so had done something bad and you went and spanked her and she looked at you and she said, Daddy, I'm no longer a Bailey, wouldn't you think she was crazy? And he got the point. And then he said the real truth in America today. He started out with, she's a Christian. You know what he said next? He said, but she's a nice person. Well, what you don't know is that she was a dear friend of their family. She was of the same socioeconomic bracket. You see, and there we come to the truth, which is that we don't love God. What we love is ourselves and those who, boast, who, who bear the greatest resemblance to us. Do you understand this? So that, for instance, we're real aggressive to defend poor pie and, and like, dolphins. <laughs> and other mammals that bear some resemblance to us. But, I mean, nobody's losing sleep over spiders. Well, then you go in the church. We're not concerned about the blacks because we're white. We're not concerned about the Jews because we're Gentile. We're not concerned about the Africans because we're North Americans. We're not consumed about we're not concerned about Mexican speakers or Spanish speakers because we speak English. And we're not concerned about anything except me and myself. And that's what we love. And so all of a sudden the Son of Man returns. We have no salt. We have no light. We have no persecution. We have no suffering. We are living defiant men, shaking our fist at God and doing it in the name of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, for our sake, though he was rich, became poor. And that's who the church is today. That's who I am. That's who you are. And many of you, I don't know, but that's who you are. That's, that's how you have been trained. And this is the group that looks at the Middle Ages and says, thank God for the Reformation. Listen, I'm not angry. I'm fully depressed. Because I'm weak and you're weaker. And that's pathetic. I need you. You know, I said to the elders yesterday, I said, you know, sometime I'd like you elders, I'd like to feel your shoulders shoving me so hard that I have to step be behind you. And Jesus, Jesus didn't mince his words. Jesus was not pandering. This is not a State of the Union address. This is not a campaign promise. This is the word of God. He has said he will return. That when he returns, every man's going to see it. And that when he returns, those who have lights that are shining and who have suffered for his name will be brought in and the door will shut and there will never, ever, ever be a chance that you will fall out of his hand. 
because you've persevered. You do realize the New Testament says that you, those who will be saved are those who what? Huh? Hold fast to the end, persevere, those who long for his appearing. How could we long for anything? We lack nothing. We're rich. <laughs> I even have friends that have tractors. <laughs> and another friend that has the trailer. I mean, what do we need, people? What do we need? What do you need? Do you need oil? Do you need oil? Remember how I started out by saying the older I get, the more I like the parts of the newspaper that have consequences? Remember that? That have actual numbers that mean something? All right? All of this parable is one unbelievably intense statement from Jesus to you and to me that we are to be ready. How are we ready? We're ready by realizing, be not deceived, God is not mocked, whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. By remembering that our God is a consuming fire. By remembering that he has said that on that day, the door will be shut. And on the inside will be those who long for his appearing. Those who bear the marks of Jesus. Remember Paul in Galatians at the end? Don't give me a hassle because I bear on my back the marks of Jesus. Any of you bear the marks of Jesus? He does. He'd tell you, though, if I had him come up, you know what he'd say to you? Because I talked to him at the time. This is the guy that wrote the blog post about homosexuality and all hell broke loose. Remember that? A couple years ago in Bloomington, some of you put your hands up so people don't think I'm crazy. Well, what he'll tell you is, well, I didn't do it intentionally. I didn't realize what would happen. In other words, God's so gracious to us that often he makes us bear his marks when we don't intend to. But we bear them. But on the outside are those who would not visit the lonely, who would not clothe the naked, who said to the Lord, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry? Who never, ever recognized an opportunity to confess the faith in the gap of the wall. Those whose sons never needed discipline. Those whose wives never needed them to give them a command. Those whose husbands never thought to give them a command. Those who were quite happy with pornography and never ever got married. Those, and it goes on and on and on and on. And the evangelical church is filled with it and we're full with it. And I already made the division and I only did what Jesus did. It's from that thermostat right to here. Half of us on one side, half of us on the other. And that's the truth. And so, do you want oil? Do you want oil? Do you? Do you want oil? I mean, you know, the people that didn't have oil went to the other people and said, I don't have oil, would you give me some? But I say, do you want oil? And you're like, well, I'm not sure. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that only violent men will take it. And you guys can't say yes. 
Remember, the Bible talks about the kingdom of heaven being seized. Okay, listen. Today, one of the ways that we get credibility with people so they hear the message and not reject the messenger is by the messenger telling you what he's really like. So I'm going to do that, and then we'll end. Okay? Here's who I am. I have a relative who's radically pro-sodomy, which you refer to because you're timid and weak as homosexuality, and some of you, because you're unbiblical, as gay. But I have a dear loved one who is radically pro-sodomy. And this same person is radically pro-abortion. Okay? And the same person refuses, intentionally refuses, to pray to God using the word Father. I talk to this person regularly. And because I have seen that we hate distinction and division, and because I've preached about it, you will be happy to know that when I speak to this person, I'm always very clear, very careful when that person says to me, will you pray for me, to say, well, yes, I will, and will you pray for me? This is me. This is me. So now... Do you want oil? Do you want oil from the Holy Spirit? Do I want oil? Yes, I do. I'm pathetically short on oil. I'm a coward. But I know that there's one thing that's even scarier than my beloved relative. And the tenure committee, my major professor, and the boss at work who's looking for anything to get rid of me. And that is God. And if I have to choose between being afraid of all of the political correctness diversity committees and what my, you know, what my relative thinks of me, And God, it's no contest. I want oil. And God says that those who come to him thirsty, it will give them a living water. And when you make it to that day, and I mean make it, by the skin of your teethy teeth teeth, when you make it to that day, the wonderful thing is that door... The same door that casts into hell those without oil is the door that forevermore keeps you safe. And the party in that room is unlike any party you Baptists have ever seen. So are you saved? Are you a true confessor of Jesus Christ? Do you have any marks of Jesus on you today? Do you?
thank you for allowing me to preach.